Hi, everybody. Welcome to another Park Report podcast interview. This is Roy. Hope you're doing okay. Before we get started, just a quick reminder to subscribe to our podcast and our podcast networks. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, and everywhere else, and also on YouTube. Uh, and uh, keep up to date on everything on our website, parkreport.com, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, and, uh, you know, maybe we'll get a TikTok page coming up soon. Who knows? My guest on this episode is Tim Bodes, who we've had on the podcast a few times. He has a new album on the way called Butterfly Mind, which was originally scheduled for release, I believe, earlier this month, but it's coming out now on August 5th. So we spoke a little while back, uh, but we're putting out the interview now for you to listen in advance of the record. There's a few singles out now if you want to check out. We spoke about the new album, how he put it together, working with Stephen Wilson again, the podcast they do called The Album Years, and a bunch more. So sit back and enjoy. Thanks. Good to uh, have you back on the show, man. Uh, we've talked a bunch of times. You've had really busy, I don't know, last eight, nine years. I mean, you've six solo records since 2014, including this this new one coming up, Butterfly Mind. Your seventh overall. Um, you know, your press release that has been sent out highlights that you've had a 40-year career, but that seems crazy. I, I Did you realize it was... It had been that long as you've sort of been involved in your in your career. No, not really. I mean, I never see it in terms of a career. I mean, I suppose it wasn't really a career until I got signed with No Man, and that was 1990. So, in some ways, that's when I think it begins, which is you know still it's 32 years ago, which <laughs> right. seems extraordinary to me now. But I, I kind of started singing in bands exactly 40 years ago this month so you know this is when I'd started as a teenager and I was kind of lucky sort of emerging when I did um in the very early 80s I mean my demo cassettes my teenage demo cassettes used to get played on major sort of Liverpool Manchester radio stations and get reviews in some of the big um, newspapers um in the locality because you know at the time there was a really vibrant local scene that took in new artists and old artists so if i did a demo cassette i could get played in the evening radio show which was a very influential uh, manchester or liverpool based show alongside the new single from kate bush or new order and um, it was very 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 open you know and, and i suppose it was a good time to emerge because it was a you know, a tremendous boost to the confidence. I remember our first ever demo, we got on the front page of our local town's newspaper, band records demo shock. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the headline um, always stuck with me because it was something like persistence will be rewarded, which, <laughs> and um, I guess I've been quite persistent since then. But um, yeah, in terms of getting signed, um, it was 1990 when No Man got signed by Hit and Run Publishing and 91 when we got signed by Wonderful Indian, uh, which is now Wonderful Independent Records. And um, a couple of years later, um, Epic um, in America, Epic 440. Wow. Well, that's, uh, yeah, I mean, that's remarkable. And, uh, you know, with this new album coming out, um, you actually, well, you had a first single called uh, Always a Stranger, which is which has now been out a, a little while. Um, and I guess that was named after one of the 80s solo bands or, or, or projects? Yeah, that well, Always the Stranger was my very first uh, solo project. And in fact, the album cover, Butterfly Mind, which I think is very different from any of my other 
album covers. The inspiration for that was partly um, based on the idea I had for my very first solo cassette, which is, uh, I, I was wanting a, an intricate symbol um, on a kind of a single color background. And the idea was for something that was both intricate and yet direct. And that's what I wanted with the artwork for this. And, and it directly follows from the very first solo cassette I ever put out. So yes, it was a kind of a knowing nod to one of the first things I ever did. Although musically, I hope it's a little better. <laughs> but it's a really good name for a band if you think about it. I mean, it, it really works. Yeah, it, it's interesting, actually, because I think Stephen and I have often had this thing that um, some of our best band names um, are the ones that are obscure or haven't um, become known. So, you know, I think Stephen's always felt a bit disappointed with Porcupine Tree that if he could go back again, that would right. not be the name he'd choose. And, and No Man, it's bizarre because, you know, I've named any number of bands from Always the Stranger to Fault Line to Dark Room um, to Memories of Machines titles and names that I really like and yet No Man which is the most important project I think I'm involved in and, and have been involved in um, it's it's a name that neither Stephen nor I like particularly it kind of happened almost by accident yeah Th those names all sort of remind me similar of bands of that era the, the band names they had like a Tears for Fears or something is that kind of was that that scene that, that you were involved in as well? I don't know whether it was. I mean, certainly with Always the Stranger, that was a very um, intense solo project. And I suppose it was closer to the solo work of somebody like Peter Hamill. Um, and there were aspects as well of people like uh, Kevin Coyne and Nico. It was quite an experimental singer-songwriter project, the original Always the Stranger. And, and initially it started off and it was very dissonant, very ugly music that kind of got prettier as it went on, really. But um, so I don't know. I think it was kind of outside of time. I mean, there are people like, I don't know if you ever heard an album called Star Solar by Tim Buckley. And um, it's a great album, yeah. but it is a difficult listen. And right. I think that is kind of where I was coming from at that point. I think I was attempting to create some kind of very personal, very very intense, hopefully distinctive solo music, but I think it ended up living in the shadow of a lot of greater artists, yeah. to be fair. Uh, the, the new album, you've done this now for the last few records, I think. There's always something very uh, Tim Bones about them that, you know, I think your voice has a lot to do with it. it, it it's very specific. But musically, there's always a slight change, and I think this one also is... Um, I don't know, a bit more dancey in times, a, a, a song like Only a Fool, very 80s sounding, I think. Um, you know, is that some? what exactly were you going for in this one and how did you kind of try to make it different from, from previous work? I think what I was going for, I think in some ways the title, uh, Butterfly Mind, it, it reflects a couple of things really. One is the eclecticism of the music. One, another is the eclecticism of the musicians who were involved in it. And I think the third is that I've always suffered in a way from a bit of musical ADHD in that once I've done something, I don't necessarily want to repeat it. Um, and of course, you know, I'm always going to investigate a particular type of melancholy ballad and I'm always going to be defined by my voice. It's something I, I can't really escape at this stage. Although 
when I started singing, my voice was a lot more aggressive and, and quite different in some respects. And I think it evolved into what I hope is, is, is much more me, really. I think, you know, once you've um, in some ways exercised the influences you, you came up with and you find yourself as um, hopefully uh, more complete and more yourself. Um, so I guess with this album, the main thing was that Late Night Laments had been a very honest, very personal and very discreet album, really. It was quite intimate. And I think after I'd made that, I just wanted to shake up what I was doing again. That was the only instinct was just to sort of come out and do something that took me to new areas. I mean, the, one of the most exciting things is about making music at this stage that I can still be surprised with what I come up with. And, and I think right. part of that, is because, you know, I, I go into this when I when I when I'm writing pieces myself, I never really pick up an instrument until I need to or feel the need to, and that could be the computer as an instrument, it, you know, samplers as an instrument, guitar, ukulele, and in some ways I'm always surprised because um, a little like Stephen Wilson, I think he said this as well, that, you know, he will only pick up the guitar when he needs to record or when he feels the need to write. And, I, and I've also been very like that, although both of us can write quite quickly. I think we only ever want to write when we feel the need. You know, there's no point in writing for the sake of writing or producing an album for the sake of producing an album. I think you've got to mean it. You've got to feel that it wants to be alive and um so when i was writing the songs on this myself I, I just went in with vague emotions really almost abstract feelings that i hoped that the music would um evoke and you know certainly with tracks like always the stranger and um the tracks that open and close uh the album say your goodbyes those were not pieces I was expecting to come up with. It was not what I was expecting right. um, at the end of that session. So it's, it's kind of, it's really nice to be still, still surprised and excited by music. And Brian, who I co-wrote uh, the rest of the album with, when he was sending me ideas, I think he was also working to that, that there was this idea that there's no point in repeating what you've done. So, um, pieces like We Feel and Only a Fool, you know, came from Brian sending me backing tracks. I then wrote melodies and lyrics to, and we both produced and um, got in various musicians to help realise the material more fully. So I'm not sure whether, you, whether I went in with an idea um, other than that I wanted to shake things up a little. I wanted to excite myself. I mean, I, as I say, I absolutely still love Late Night Laments and feel it was exactly the album that needed to be made at that time. And, and for whatever reason, I think I was kind of feeling more creatively restless after that. So where do songs start for you typically or has that changed? Is it is it a piano? Is it uh, playing with drum loops? I mean, where do you start when you are, are kicking off a song? It can honestly start with with any of those things. So let's say the songs I've written over the, the last six albums have been released on Inside Out. You know, two or three of them have started on ukulele and, and the ukuleles ended up in the... Really? Yeah. <laughs> and 
Um, and a couple of the tracks, Rainmark for One, um, yeah, actually features the original ukulele part that, that is the demo. So, um, yeah, I, I've written on ukulele, I've written on guitar, I've written on keyboard, and I've written from samples. A, a track like Always the Stranger very much came from sampling, and it was using sampled guitars, sampled rhythms, and finding a spot then I could hear where my voice went and then I could hear what the song was about and so on really um and some songs know that you were loved for example um from stupid things I mean the world that began as a really simple acoustic guitar and voice piece it was you know almost written as one the the vocal melody the lyric and the guitar so yeah, any any of those methods and all of those methods, and you know, one of the tracks off the last album, I think I played the keyboard using the keyboard of my computer. That is what started <laughs> because I because I didn't have access to my MIDI um, keyboard. I was just writing certain things um, using the, the computer keyboard. You know, so there's always an aspect when I'm using sampling. I'll always try and uh, alter the notes of the samples or I always try and play um, real keyboard parts over that or indeed as with always the stranger get people to replace those parts so um, a rhythm section replaced the bass and drums Brian replaced an awful lot of the guitars and so on and, and we both played real synths over them so even the pieces that are coming from a sample or a program bass I like to kind of shake it up and give it a more human quality yeah there's a, a longer song uh the next to last one on the on the record dark nevada dream it's about eight minutes um you know talk about that one where does where does that one come from on, on this record well that one came from a backing track that um brian had sent me and um i really liked it but it was it was probably about 10 minutes originally and was with rolling cycles rolling chord sequence cycles and so i got that put it in my studio and then eventually found my way into it melodically and lyrically and cut the piece up so the arrangement is very different from what was originally sent and so it was a really nice combination of being sent an idea that inspired me and then me cutting that up sending it back to Brian and then from that point uh, replacing once more the bass and the drums with real bass and drums uh, bringing in other players such as Dave Formula is on Hammond organ on that and it's um, beautiful beautiful sound and some tremendous playing from him so once more this is something that almost starts from a kind of cold file sharing basis that became very human and very interactive yeah speaking of uh, the different people involved on the record i mean it's there's a ton of guests on here uh you know just naming a couple i mean ian anderson nick beggs peter hamill greg Spotton, big big train uh, a bunch of others um you know did you go into it wanting to have that many people included or as the song started to evolve you know Hey, that guy would be good on this. Yeah, how does that work? Very much the latter. I think it's the song dictates who plays on it. So with Dave Formula, for example, Dave 
was in a couple of big bands in Britain called Magazine and Visage. And I always loved his playing in Magazine. And he's got a fascinating history because although he became famous in the very late 70s and early 80s, he was in a band signed to Decca, I think, in 1965. Hmm. Um, a band producing kind of mod R&B music. And uh, this kind of explained why he was such a good Hammond player, because he played Hammond in the 60s in a lot of bands in Manchester. And so there was one track on the album, Only Fool, which had some quite demented atonal synths. And it reminded me very much of what Dave had done in magazine. And so I sought him out. I thought, actually, wouldn't it be really interesting to get the source of the inspiration on this and see what he can add to it? And um, I also wanted Hammond organ on a couple of pieces and knowing that he was a strong player, you know, this is what um, inspired me to get him. Getting Richard Jupp from Elbow on drums was because I adored his drumming on the first few Elbow albums and felt he was an incredibly expressive and intelligent drummer. And I sort of thought that the music I was doing could bring something out of him as well because you know he was clearly always a really gifted drummer but the last few elbow albums which I think are wonderful they're wonderful records they were more subservient to the song so the players aren't necessarily coming out on those albums and so for me getting Richard was just hearing a great player being free to be a great player really um nick beggs i got involved um this was a real tussle for me between getting colin edwin who's been on all my solo albums previously and nick and i was discussing it with stephen wilson and we both felt that both of them would be excellent but as i've not worked with nick nick was likely to bring something quite fresh to the project sonically yeah he would shake it up and this is kind of what i was after and so that's how nick got involved really because you know he's a tremendous player and personality and he really did um do some unexpected things on some of the pieces and that's exactly what I wanted and that's not to say that Colin wouldn't have come up with those things I mean Colin is a fantastically tasteful player and we're still working together in fact this week we're working on a piece so um you know luckily you know no fallings out there and um Ian Anderson, you know, obviously legendary player whose work I've loved for years. And I think yeah. getting him on a couple of tracks, what I wanted was his very distinctive and passionate flute playing, but in quite a fresh context. So I think We Feel, which is one of the hardest hitting pieces on the album, it really isn't a typical Ian Anderson piece and nor is Say Your Goodbyes part one. And there's, there's an outtake as well in which he's playing really lyrical flutes and tin whistles so once more it's it's about using players who you know can enhance the material but also giving them a context that's different you know ian anderson wouldn't release we feel or clearing houses as jess rotel um elbow never did anything like only a fool um yeah and so on and and with the um album as a whole in order to break away from the electronics and the intimacy of late night laments i wanted to use a live rhythm section throughout and so this is why richard and nick um are on almost all the tracks so it, it gives it a sense of power and cohesion and a much more um band sensibility 
And uh, and of course, Stephen is is back uh, mixing and mastering the record. Um, you know, the last No Man album was was received really well. You guys are doing the podcast together. You know, working with him in all these various ways. Does it change from method to method? You know, the, the the sort of rapport you guys have with the podcast, which is great, and I want to talk about that too. Um, but is that similar when he's mixing or mastering, or or is that sort of sort of hands off and he does his thing and and it's a bit more intense? Like, does it change? It it varies really. I mean, I think our relationship in some ways is pretty similar um, to, to what it was. I mean, we're going to uh, actually have you know talking of anniversaries. August of this year will be 35 years since I first met Stephen and we started writing together, wow. which seems like you know, a hell of a long time. And of course, it is a hell of a long time. Amazing, yeah. And, um, you know, I, I, I met him when he was still a teenager and working from his bedroom in Hemel Hempstead. And, and we'd kind of been in contact for a few months via letters, you know, snail mail, that archaic form of communication. And we'd sent tapes to one another and we talked occasionally on the phone. and when we met, and, and we always say this, and it's entirely true, that we met, he met me from the train, um, I'd come from the north of England to the south of England, and we talked about four or five hours, as we had done on the phone, about what we loved about music, what we hated about music, what we wanted to achieve with music. And after this five-hour chat, we just sat down together and we wrote two radically different songs within probably an hour or two, and one of them was this vicious three minute almost punk funk indie piece and the other was a seven and a half minute classic almost prog flavored ballad and one of the great things about working with Stephen is that he was one of the first people I worked with where there were there were no boundaries I think for both of us we, we, as I hope the album years shows, we both had incredibly eclectic tastes. Of course, you know, we've got limitations to our tastes. Everybody has limitations to what they can listen to in their lifetime or what they like, really. But we, we both were not very tribal. You know, I, I've been in bands before that I did and do feel were strong, but it was more limited in its parameters, perhaps, or more tribal in its outlook. And I think that was one of the exciting things about working with Stephen was that, you know, we were both really open to creative possibilities. And so I'm not sure it has necessarily um, changed, you know, when he was mixing and mastering this. Um, I suppose, you know, I, I go back a fair bit and say, okay, what about this? What about that? And he also, adds his opinions, you know, because he likes to assess the piece afresh, really. So, you know, there's definitely something of of his input in yeah. there as well. And I think, you know, he is a he is a creative sounding board and always was. And I say you're getting Nick Beggs on the album. That was partly Stephen's suggestion, really. The the podcast, the album years, has been like an amazing success. Uh, very popular from everything you read and see about it. Uh, how long had that idea been in the works between the two of you? Was it was that just conversations that generally were going on and, and you finally realized we should just record this? In, in some ways it should have been. I mean, I know that when the first couple of album years came out, people who toured with No Man said, that's just the two of you talking on the tour bus. Right. <laughs> you know, because, yeah. you know, we would always talk music, films, books, but especially 
music. And, uh, you know, we'd often have various music quizzes as well. And um, what was interesting is when we had the music quizzes on the tour bus, it would always come down to myself and Stephen, you know, at the end of it. We, mm. we would be the two men left standing. I think we had we had the most stamina and, <laughs> and you know, hopefully a, a fair amount to, to draw from, really. And, um, yeah, the idea, actually, um, it was Stephen phoned me, and I think it was probably around the time Late Night Laments. So he'd been working with me on Late Night Laments, doing the mix for that, and i just finished it and handed it in, and that was on the day of the first lockdown announcement in Britain. And Stephen realised that he wouldn't be able to tour Future Bites for the foreseeable future. Yeah. And so he phoned me up and said, look, you know, I've always felt a podcast would be good. What do you think? And so we then had a couple of days of just discussing it, knocking ideas around. And um, once I'd come up with the title, The Album Years, everything crystallized and we probably did the first podcast within about a week of us thinking we'd do it and this is you know i know that podcasts have been a thing for about the last decade and certainly the last half decade but in this country it's really been the last year where they've taken off massively so we you know ever so slightly predated the uh, yeah. massive takeoff but it was it was actually partly us trying to give back to music what music had given to us. You know, we've always been enthusiastic consumers of, of music and we've always been fiercely opinionated when it's come to music as well. And it was, it was nice to sort of, in some ways, um, project that enthusiasm and project that obsession in a public domain. And, and we've enjoyed doing it. Yeah, I think the passion that you guys give off from it uh, and the knowledge uh, you can really see that you listen to so many things and it lets people in to know that you're not just you know for example Stephen looked at as a prog guy or this I mean he's clearly not he likes ev almost everything under the sun you know um, mm. and uh, it's fascinating it's, it's fun it's really natural and it's a, it's a great listen but when you talk about podcasts I mean even myself I've been doing this one now almost 10 years which is I can't even believe that but when I first started this one, I felt like everybody has a podcast and I'm the, you know, <laughs> walking at the end. But now, 10 years later, really everyone has a podcast. Now, really everybody has a podcast. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was kind of relatively oblivious to podcasts, I have to say, <laughs> until I did one, really. Um, so, you know, we had no training in it and we edit it ourselves and we're both fierce editors. So when we do an album years, we might talk for about four hours and we could reduce that down to one hour or less. Um, so we, we're both quite, you know, thorough in terms of what we, we do on this. And, you know, he'll do an initial edit, then I'll do a massive edit, then he'll do another massive edit, then I'll oh, do Oh, really? Edit. It's that detail? I didn't, yeah, that's fascinating. And it, you I can't mean, really tell, it's pretty seamless every time I've, I've heard it. Yeah, well, thank you. I think, I mean, obviously that is the, what we, how we want it to appear in that way. Yeah, yeah we, <laughs> we, we, we tend to cut out an awful lot, you know, um, and it could be, you know, certain personal reminiscences we might take out as well. But, you know, what is in there is, is genuine. And I think one of the reasons why the, the podcast works is because we're being honest about it. We're being honest sure. about our 
tastes and ourselves and um and, and again it comes back to why i really work work like working with stephen in the first place that we were both actually pretty honest we weren't embarrassed by what we liked and one of the things that i'm still kind of amazed at in a way and and it's because as i said you know maybe we're limited by our own abilities and also you know what emotionally appeals to us but one of the things that's kind of interesting to me is that we did develop although there are you know three or four very varied strands no man has a sound and i think my solo work has a sound and steven's work has a sound so however far we go in certain directions we always bring ourselves to it and i think that's a crucial thing as well you know that the music reflect you rather than just being a kind of eclectic mishmash and imitation of what's out there absolutely do you um are there plans to return to the podcast i know you both are busy with a lot of different projects and it's it seems like it's a bit on a hiatus but is there a plan to continue it oh yeah i mean we're actually we're halfway through 1978 at the moment so we've left it dangling <laughs> we've, we've got <laughs> if nothing else we've got to finish that year and um we we did i mean when we were doing it and, and as i say that one was cut in half and we maybe um took out an hour of, of, of chat on that and we both felt actually an entire series could be done about certain years that we feel are pivotal in in rock history and um and i think mostly we sort of agree one of the things that i found is that mostly we agree but then there are you know the the odd albums that i will defend that he despises and and right. vice versa really do you have um, a, a favorite year after doing these in, in more detail uh and looking back going oh yeah that 1976 whatever you know that that actually turned out to be my favorite year that i can think of uh, yeah i mean good question I, I, oh, i'm not sure i do yet although the period we found really fertile for us is that late 1970s to early 1980s because it was really exciting for the new wave post-punk reggae movements that were happening but equally a lot of the older artists were coming in with their most innovative and important work so if you think of the classic rock artist pink floyd fleetwood mac you know 1979 the wall yeah. and tusk which are amongst their most creative works Peter Gabriel is ripping up the rule book in 1980 with three in the same way that Japan are ripping up the rule book in 1981 with Tin Drum. So it was a really exciting period for old and new artists. Um, and I guess it coincides with us being young teenagers and buying an awful lot of music. I mean, you know, I still do buy and listen to a lot of music, but at that time there really was a sense of you know the small town i lived in we had maybe five or six record shops which yeah. is amazing there was right. even a record shop in the tiny village offshoot that i lived in and music really was culturally incredibly important when i was at school yeah yeah and well, steven you know yeah absolutely uh tim this is fun man i i i could talk to you about uh a random year of, of the album years for another 30 minutes but uh again i just want to uh, point out the new record butterfly mind good luck to you with the record man always a pleasure talking to you and i look forward to more podcasts and uh, other stuff that you have going on yep thank you you too All right, man take it easy bye
Bye. Thanks to Tim for the interview. Don't forget his new album, Butterfly Mind, comes out on August 5th. We're going to close with a bit of the track, Only a Fool, which is one of the singles out now. For upcoming news interviews, follow us on progreport.com. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Special episodes on YouTube and subscribe to our podcast on our podcast networks, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. We'll see you soon. Thanks. Bye. Only a fool could think what you